Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Today we are continuing our March series on amazing women who have been instrumental in creating necessary and needed changes for survivors of domestic abuse and sexual assault. And we are very pleased to have one of our heroes, Lynn Rosenthal, on with us today. Lynn Rosenthal was recently appointed to lead the DOD Commission on Sexual Assault, which we could not be happier about, and is the president of the Center for Family Safety and Healing. Prior to that, Lynn served as the policy director for the Biden Foundation's Violence Against Women initiatives and served as the vice president for strategic partnerships at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Lynn was also the very first White House advisor on violence against women. Lynn, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right, Lynn, you've accomplished so much over the years. What led to you working in the field of domestic violence and sexual assault to begin with? Well, thank you, because I think I'm with two uh, very accomplished women yourselves, so I appreciate that. Uh, so I worked in women's health care when I got out of college. I was a health educator and a social worker. I'm a social worker by training, and I wanted to work in women's health care. And it was a time of a lot of excitement in women's health care. There was a lot of frontline education going on. Women were learning more about their reproductive health and so it was an exciting time to be there. But what I noted in women's clinics is that uh, I often assisted the doctor with gynecological exams, and we saw a lot of women with injuries on their bodies. And I, we were a women-centered clinic, and I still didn't know what this was. I hadn't been trained in it, didn't understand really how to, how to work with women that I would see in the clinic. And very often, women who were experiencing domestic violence were not able to be compliant with medications, were not able to make appointments, you know, they were obviously having a lot of difficulty. So we connected with the local shelter. And as a result of that, I learned more about this movement to end violence against women and uh, was recruited to go work in the shelter. I, we did some work with women who were in prison. They were in prison for having killed abusive spouses. And that was a really difficult education because these women's stories were horrific. And at that time, they were very trapped and in very unsafe situations. And so ended up in even more difficult situations as a result. So I learned a lot in those early days. But then what also happened is when I was being trained on the dynamics of domestic violence, I saw the power and control wheel, abuse, intimidation, verbal threats, sexual abuse, and I identified a relationship in my own life when I was a co young college student that was very abusive and caused me to drop out of college and be isolated from my family and friends. It was a classic textbook, but I didn't know the textbook. You know, at that when I had, was in college, we didn't have a language for this. We didn't use the words dating violence. We really didn't know anything about this. And so that had happened to me and derailed me for much of my early 20s. But I didn't learn what it was until really 15 years later when I started working in this field. So then it, of course, became like it does for many people, very personal to me. Absolutely. I can't imagine, you know, kind of seeing yourself in the power and control wheel. It must be, you know, it, the first time you see it, I think it can be life changing for victims who can't verbalize it. I've had conversations with friends, you know, who, who have been like, I, ha I have a bad relationship, but don't recognize the signs that it's a, you know, abusive relationship because they may not be getting, you know, hit or there may not be sexual violence that's associated with it. 
Um, and so I imagine that when you did your career change and moved into the field of violence against women that you never thought it would lead to working in the West Wing. So what was it like to be the first ever White House advisor on violence against women? And did you have I, any idea when you were appointed to that position what you were getting into? Well, no, and it was kind of terrifying uh, because, you know, I was trained as an advocate and I came from the shelter work and then I worked in state domestic violence coalitions and eventually at the National Network to End Domestic Violence. But as advocates, we're trained, it's, it's an interesting thing. So we're trained to stop bad things from happening. We're always in a reactive posture. Like this policy change will happen and it will harm victims of domestic violence or sexual assault. So we have to stop it. Or, you know, I think back, for example, to the early days of welfare reform, when this massive piece of legislation was passed that where victims of domestic violence were not being included in that debate and how life-saving public assistance was for them and how they were going to be harmed by that legislation. That's just one example. There are many. So my advocacy career had been sort of defined by that kind of way of working in this reactive stance. And then I get into the White House and I realized that there was institutional power available to actually create positive change. And that was very eye-opening and also a little bit overwhelming because it, it had to be very carefully harnessed to make the right kinds of things happen. So I, I really had to learn, and I, I tell the story of, I went to my first meeting with the Office of Management and Budget. I was told, come and talk about the programs that you're concerned about. And I brought my little chart of the Violence Against Women Act programs where there's a million here and you know maybe 10 or 40 million there. And that's what I went in ready to defend. And I stepped into a conversation that was much bigger, not about these little line items on a chart that really in the federal budget were very, very insignificant, important, but not in dollar terms, very big at all. So I walk into this conversation where it's very different, where people are talking about what are the billions of dollars we need to invest in a social problem to move the needle, to make a change. If we invest X in communities, we can anticipate a certain type of real result, not these little incremental steps, but an actual shift in the landscape. And I was really not, I had to train myself to think that way. And it was a very exciting to think about, oh, that's what institutional power is. That's why it matters who's in the White House. The other piece of that is that it's very important for issues like this to have a presence in the White House because on domestic violence and sexual assault, I'd add trafficking as well. These pieces sit across various federal agencies. And so somebody needs to pull those agencies together in an interagency process where we're leveraging the experience that exists. So what does CDC know about prevention and how can the Office on Violence Against Women in the Justice Department utilize that? And what has the Family Violence Prevention Office and HHS learned about services on the ground and how can that be incorporated? So I really was excited by the opportunity to break those silos and to bring those people together. And that, that was really a, a dynamic process for sure. Well, Lynn, I know you worked on many projects at your time in the West Wing that created positive change and broke down a lot of these silos. And one of the ones Melissa and I are most just fascinated by that you worked on in your time was the work with regard to Title mm -hmm. IX and campus sexual assault. 
Why was this such a focus of your time at the White House? And what are you most proud of that came out of your office with regard to campus sexual assault? Well, it was a very important issue that was on our radar from the beginning. Uh, so in later years, the student protest increased the pressure for change, but we had started long before that. And I think that's important to note. So our Title IX work was part of this whole of government approach to responding to the high rates of domestic violence, dating violence and sexual assault experienced by young people ages 16 to 24, whether in the community or on campus. So we were looking across the federal government at where we could make a difference. And the Department of Education and Title IX was a part of that work. The vice president at the time, now President Biden, had started looking at this very early in the first term. And he asked us to really look at the data and analyze it carefully. And we identified this issue of such a high burden carried by young people on college campuses. So the first step was to develop or to issue guidance. And it really was not new policy so much as interpreting the existing Title IX guidance and updating those for campus environment. So it was really about issuing guidance that clarified the responsibility of colleges, universities, and also K through 12 schools to respond to and work to prevent sexual violence. So that guidance was issued in 2009. Vice President Biden traveled to, at the time, then Vice President Biden traveled to the University of New Hampshire with Secretary Duncan at the Department of Education to release this new guidance and talk about what it would mean. And then we began the work in earnest to help schools and universities and colleges implement the new guidelines. It's complicated work and schools were really struggling with what to do. Uh, and we received inquiries right away. How can we implement this? How do we best help students? We tried to implement a lot of confidentiality protections for students while still giving schools the tools to move forward with their responsibilities. So we spent a lot of time on that. But as we were steadily trying to answer these questions, you know, they each take a really reasoned policy analysis and legal analysis. That's a long, a long process. The student protests really began in earnest. And so the student group started picketing the Obama administration. And, you know, I saw on Facebook this little protest and I click on it and it was against the Obama administration. So I was really uh, surprised by that because I felt that we were working very steadily. And what the student groups were saying is that we needed to be work faster and we needed to be more transparent and we needed to get schools more tools right away because the problem was still so ongoing. Uh, so that outside pressure was good. And at the same time, we still needed to take our time to get it right. So several years later, we released a, a, an additional set of guidance documents in the form of a frequently asked questions that really became a really good guidepost for schools to utilize. So I think what was most important though about those days is the conversation. Uh, the vice president at the time created the It's On Us program, which was really about educating bystanders and what their role is to intervene and help prevent sexual assault, educate school personnel, really raise awareness, get the conversation going. And I've seen that as I traveled around with him at that time. But even after I left the White House, when I visited with campuses and universities, I really saw It's On Us in action, bringing together all the different sectors, the student athletes, 
the student council, the fraternity, the Greek system, the independence. Some of the most exciting efforts we saw were when schools would bring everyone to the table. I remember when we visited the University of Miami and saw how they were utilizing It's On Us to activate all those sectors on campus. So it was terrific. So I think the greatest success was getting the conversation going, getting schools really focused on this and getting the university leadership engaged. You know, like every place we address sexual violence, it's leadership from the top that makes such a difference. And I think we really accomplished that. I absolutely agree. I can say, you know, when the Obama administration's guidelines came out, I had been out of college for quite some time. And I can tell you that there was a stark change from when I was in college. I don't think I even knew about the Title IX office, even in my four years at university. And I think that that was probably true for so many of my friends who went through it and and experienced sexual misconduct and sexual assault. And so just raising awareness is such an important matter because if we're not talking about it, we can't fix the problems. And so there have been a lot of recent changes to Title IX based on the last administration um, as it relates to sexual misconduct. And Catherine and I have spent a lot of time talking on No Gray Zone about these changes and our concerns about those changes. What concerns do you have about the changes that were made in the past administration? Well, certainly it's quite significant to have a rule that narrows the definition of sexual harassment and and that limits the ability of schools to respond to off-campus conduct, which has an effect on a student being able to continue her education on campus. So it really limits the ability to address the kind of retaliation that somebody would experience than on campus if their assault occurred off campus. And so those are just one among many of the policies that I know you all have looked at. But what I'm really encouraged by is that the as that President O'Biden signed an executive order, I guess just last week, which would orders a review of the Title IX rules, all rules, policies, and regulations within the Department of Education to see where they're inconsistent with the Biden-Harris administration priorities. So I think then we'll see from that. And I think it is important to take the time to get that right. What are the pieces of the the uh, previous Obama administration policies that are still included in the rule? What should stay and what should Uh, not stay. And, you know, 2011 was the beginning of the process, but there was a lot to learn in the intervening time. And so I think it is important for the Biden administration to look closely at what's good in this rule from previous, from the previous iterations of the guidance, what should remain, what should go. So I think it's important to take time to really scope that out and analyze that in today's climate's What is it that schools, what are the tools schools need today? And where have we seen positive change? And where have we seen a need for for a new opportunity to make new policies or guidances? So I, I have full faith in the president's educational folks to work with him on that. We know it's something that we constantly have to re-examine and be adaptable to and make changes because you're absolutely correct. You know, a lot of things are positive. There are things that are negative and there's ways society changes in between all of these matters, which change how we react to something. But we know that Title IX changes got a lot of attention while you were in the White House, but outside of those very public changes, what are just one or two things that you're very proud of having worked on during your time as a White House advisor that maybe didn't get as much publicity? Oh, that's a great question. Well, first, when I I started in 2009, and it was a time not unlike today. So I began my work at the White House in in 
uh, July of 2009. And the vice president, then Vice President Biden, was working on the Recovery Act. And his folks were tasked with that. And he was very engaged with that. And it was a time not unlike today, where the country was really facing such a major crisis. So we had to think about what can we do in this area? And what are the intersections between what's happening in the country and the way that women and families, communities are experiencing domestic violence and sexual assault. And we found that was a really strong nexus. And so in the first Recovery Act, there were funds available for domestic violence programs in the STOP grant program out of the Department of Justice. And this time around in the in the COVID rescue package, there are funds available for domestic violence and rape crisis centers. So I'm really excited about that. So I just reflect back that I started in a time when the country was facing this terrible economic crisis. And I had to think at the time about how did that intersect with my work on violence against women. One area that's so critically important is how employers respond to domestic violence and sexual assault. So we worked on policies to improve the federal government's response to people among their own workforce. This was work that had started way back in the Clinton administration, but was never finalized in guidance. So President Obama signed an executive order that required federal agencies to develop policies for domestic violence and sexual assault and what the response should be. And this was a result in part of how many calls I got from victims when I first started at the White House who were experiencing domestic violence and often they themselves and the abusive spouse were both federal employees and they needed a real response so that they could keep their jobs so that they weren't pushed out of the workforce. We know that the majority of domestic violence victims are harassed at work and so we needed to help them. So while I couldn't step into their individual situations, we could address it from a policy view and that's what we chose to do. So we had a big event in the South Court Auditorium and we invited all the advocacy groups, but I still wasn't sure that people would understand and my colleagues in the White House policymaking uh, shops would understand how important this was. Was it just a bureaucratic change or was it something that would really matter? And so we had a great announcement. The vice president talked about it, then Vice President Biden and why it was so important. I got back to my desk and my phone rang and there was a woman on the other end of the line and she said, I just want to thank Vice President Biden and and I want to thank you for this workplace violence policy. She said, I work in an obscure office and literally in the basement of the West Wing and I'll, I'll probably never meet you. But when I worked at another federal agency, I had a colleague that was killed as a result of domestic violence. And I think if policies like this had been in place, her supervisor may have been able to help her. She, her life may have been saved. And so my hope for today is that this policy will save other women's lives. And I was so struck by that because here I thought somebody that people wouldn't understand its importance. And here is somebody who understood it from a very personal experience. So that the workplace uh, violence policy was really exciting. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will pick back up on that work and get federal agencies engaged in implementing those policies. I, I don't think that there was much focus on that in the previous and the most recent administration. So that was exciting. The other piece that we worked on was on HIV AIDS and violence against women. So we examined this nexus on how trauma that women experience drives HIV AIDS in women. So what we found is in the first national AIDS strategy, there was very little 
mention of women, but women carry about a quarter of the burden of the HIV AIDS epidemic still today. And when women get sick and die from HIV AIDS, it affects the whole community. It's a ripple effect. So they, even though their numbers are smaller, you know, from an epidemiology perspective, when they get sick and die, which they do more frequently than men, they affect, it affects the whole community because women are caregivers for parents, for children, for the community. We really wanted to look at this closely and we found that trauma was very much a driver of the risk factors for women experiencing HIV AIDS, whether it was forced trading of sex for drugs as a form of abuse, forced sex through sexual assault with more, multiple perpetrators, as you know, happens in some of these domestic violence cases. So the women were kind of teed up who had those long trauma histories to be exposed to HIV AIDS. So we brought this interagency group together who worked on how um, women, how organizations could better serve women, how we could use the levers of the federal HIV AIDS programs to support that. We came up with about 60 recommendations and it really mattered on the ground. So we heard from a lot of these very small little advocacy organizations trying to help women with HIV AIDS and how much it mattered to them that we took a really serious look at this. So that made a really big difference, I think. Um, it's not something you would hear about. You know, we don't talk that much about HIV AIDS today, even though it's still a, a tremendous concern. Uh, women were are much more likely today, I'm sure, to have access to these prophylactic drugs or to be able to be compliant with them if they're experiencing abuse. So it's still in need of further attention, without a doubt. Uh, and we also took a look at domestic violence homicides. And, you know, I have a very strong belief, and you all, I'm sure, know this from your work, that most domestic violence homicides are preventable if the risk factors are recognized and early action is taken. So we took a look at the various models, the Maryland model, which resulted in reduced domestic violence homicides. That involves screening people on the scene of a domestic violence crime and connecting them immediately, uh, an immediate handoff to an, a domestic violence hotline. We took a look at the Jeannie Geiger crisis model in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which involves standing up a high-risk team to identify high-risk cases and use whatever tools are at their disposal to contain the offender and protect the victim and protect public safety. So we analyzed those models and developed some pilot projects and funded a number of communities around the country to carry that work out. And I know that uh, evaluation is due, I think, soon, a final evaluation of those projects or has recently been released. And so we'll learn more about what was effective and what worked. But it's critical, important, critically important now because we are seeing, and I'm sure you all know, a big spike in domestic violence homicides as a result of COVID. We're seeing here where I work on the local level, increased rates of domestic violence and that what, by the time people call a hotline or call the police for help, the violence is quite severe. We're seeing a real increase. Our local shelter has said recently where women come in with very severe injuries. You know, that's not the typical situation when women come into shelter, they usually kind of figure out a time they can leave successfully and they have time to sort that through. But now what we're seeing is women are coming into shelter when they've been very severely injured, seriously injured. So they need a lot of medical care. So all those lessons learned from the Obama administration on domestic violence homicides really need to be applied today. And I'm excited about the new resources in the Family Violence Prevention and Services Act under the COVID bill, because I hope there's an opportunity to really intervene early our police department here in Columbus, Ohio, 
did lethality assessment screening of 1,900 domestic violence cases between January and October of 2020, and they found that there was a 70% uh, of those cases were high-risk cases. So um, it's just a growing problem. I, I, I'm not sure it's getting enough attention, uh, but we can do something about it by helping identify high-risk cases and getting people intervention and support, to support early on. I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think it's highlighted enough. I mean, I know there are so many issues with COVID, uh, you know, financial issues, economic issues, you know, health issues, but it really is, Catherine and I say it, a pandemic within a pandemic. We've seen it in our own work, the increased rates of, of violent domestic violence cases, increases in homicides, and these programs are so successful, but they're hard to measure because, you know, you don't, you can't measure when a homicide doesn't occur, but, you know, I know um, from my experiences and speaking to survivors, how much they benefit from it. Um, and we know that your, your work in the field didn't end at the White House. You are currently um, heading the DOD commission, but after your time at the White House, you went on to work as the vice president of strategic partnerships at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And the National Domestic Violence Hotline is one of our favorite organizations. We know it provides a lot more than um, a lot more services than just answering calls, emergency calls. And even though many people just consider it a national hotline, um, it has so much more to offer. So can you tell us a little bit about the projects you worked on while you were at the National Domestic Violence Hotline? Uh, sure. The first thing I would say is I don't think I gave them my best because I started there just two weeks after I left the White House and I'd been at the White House for five and a half years. So I was very tired. <laughs> so I should have taken a little bit more time off. But I was I was really thrilled to be part of this, you know, really important organization. So what I, I really looked at the Love is Respect program and worked to connect educational associations with the Love is Respect hotline helpline, helpline really is what it's called, focusing on dating violence, you know, and, and this was a real focus on K through 12 schools and educational associations that were working in high schools. And so I, I worked to focus on that. We also had a really great internship program that was supported by Mary Kay. You know, they are very committed to this uh, work and they supported two interns that we recruited to bring the, the Title IX work and the educational work to their college campuses. And they just did an incredible job. They did a review of the landscape of policies and protocols. They helped implement policies and protocols at their schools and make recommendations for improvement. So I, they're incredible, the two that we had. And I, I think the organization went on to have more after I left. But it was just one of those really great efforts where you can utilize student leaders. And both of them, one has gone on to complete law. I think she's finishing up law school this year. And the other has gone on to do really important national work in this area of dating violence. So it's a great example of how you can really mentor student leaders to their next steps in the work. So I was really proud of that. Uh, and just working to connect the hotline with additional funders who could support the dating violence work and to keep the issue very much on the radar for the philanthropic sector. So I also was a move to end violence cohort member during that time. And we were very much working on the intersection of racial justice and violence against women. So we were really thinking about where are the disparities in the response? What, what are some of the efforts that this field had engaged in that were not successful for black women, for example? What needed to be done differently? 
Homicide reduction is an important example of that, where these uh, programs that were primarily law enforcement based were not really meeting the mark for Black communities or marginalized communities. And so we were looking at what needed to be done differently in that way as a result of the Move to End Violence Project. And now the Move to End Violence Project really centers the voices of, of people of color across the gender binary, working on LGBTQ and the intersection with violence and LGBTQ uh, concerns. So it was great to be a part of that and to do that work a, as a part of my role at the hotline. I, I think you're incapable of giving less than your best to any organization you work with. No, no, I, I it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> love is Respect is a program that Melissa and I love and try to highlight every time we can. We did a series just last month on teen dating violence, and we know so many people were shocked at the statistics of one in three for teen dating violence as well as statistics when it comes to racial disparities with regard to intimate partner violence. So it is clear to us that everywhere you go, you work on true and necessary change. So as president for the Center for Family Safety and Healing, what does your work center on there? Oh, it's a terrific organization and it's very unusual. So the Center for Family Safety and Healing is a child advocacy center, a domestic violence program, a nurse family partnership and social work home visiting program. And we also provide services for children in foster care. So what we're really doing is looking at trauma across the lifespan. So we provide forensic exams and support care for children who've been sexually abused. We provide advocacy and counseling for victims of domestic violence. We provide prevention service for at-risk moms and their babies, and we provide services for children in foster care. And we provide a trauma-informed approach for uh, providing a medical home for children in foster care. So it's a it's a unique program, and it's part of Nationwide Children's Hospital, which is a large regional pediatric hospital. It's a marvelous institution. The people are so devoted to child well-being, and particularly during this COVID period, I was grateful to be a part of Nationwide Children's Hospital because we had to keep seeing abused kids in our clinic. So we had to figure out how to do that safely for families and for staff. And we were able to do that as part of a pediatric hospital. Uh, so we, our domestic violence program is also sadly really growing during this time period. So we have a, a counseling waiting list of like six months sometimes. We have so many cases of women who want to, and men, families, people who want to spend time Uh, working on their recovery from violence and what that means in the long term. But we also provide crisis intervention and advocacy, and and we help with court accompaniment and hospital accompaniment, and really bringing advocacy on site for victims of domestic violence. And then in our home visiting programs, uh, we find that the incidence of domestic violence is very high among at-risk moms and their babies, and also of childhood trauma and trauma from sexual abuse or sexual assault. And so we take a trauma-informed approach and we have a really growing program that focuses on reducing infant mortality and increasing the well-being of moms and babies. So it's really great. And we've learned a lot, you know, each of these programs inform the other. So we've learned a lot about prevention as a result of that home visiting program. And we hope to bring more of that prevention of domestic violence and child abuse lens. 
And right now we're really focused on housing. So this was even before the pandemic, we were very focused on this area because we believe that the provision of housing is just as important as counseling and support groups. And, you know, if somebody doesn't know where they're going to, what their roof, where they're going to find a roof over their head that night, it's very hard to say, let me go see my counselor. So we're very focused on bringing housing assistance. We're working with the local community shelter board to train the housing homeless system about the needs of victims of domestic violence and also also of families experiencing child abuse. Uh, we, we saw a family where the perpetrator was undocumented and was arrested. And the mom was left with no source of support or income at all and needed housing assistance and family assistance when the perpetrator was removed from the home. Um, and that's an interesting situation where we see the intersection of the work we do with the need for good immigration policies. So um, in that particular case, we would have liked the family to be able to come forward earlier, but was not able to because of their own fears about immigration status. So that's a good example of how on the ground, like the policy issues I worked on in in the Obama administration around that, that nexus, I'm able to see on the ground that you have to have, for example, humane immigration policies in order to serve victims of domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse as we saw in this particular case. I'm excited to have that opportunity to do that kind of work at the local level. And Columbus is a really dynamic community where people are really interested in thinking about some of these big ideas. Yeah, it, it is amazing to me how all of the national policies that we think don't have effect on us really do affect us, you know, and affect the work that we do in domestic violence and sexual abuse and child sex abuse. I know that Catherine and I have both experienced cases where victims haven't come forward because of, you know, concerns regarding how they're going to pay the, the bills, how they're going to, you know, live and because of concerns regarding immigration. And Lynn, we could talk to you all day, but we know you're super busy. So that is all the time we have for today. If you want to learn more about Lynn Rosenthal, uh, Title IX, or some of the amazing work she has done, you will find links to the C-SPAN videos with Lynn, articles in our notes, as well as a link to the book, The West Wingers, Lynn contributed to. Lynn, it has truly been a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you both for all the work that you have done in this area and to be continued. You know, we're all part of this long-term social change. Well, Lynn, you are welcome anytime on No Gray Zone. We hope to have you back again when we can talk about some of the other amazing work that you are working on now. So thank you for everything that you have done to educate, provide services, and help eradicate sexual assault and gender-based violence. We would be remiss if we didn't mention to our listeners that you can also find articles at the website movetoendviolence.org. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. And you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to gender-based violence.